Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. It's the Wonky Show. A radical overhaul of student finance is coming. We'll get across the detail. The nurse review is out, but will the patient take the medicine? And there's new polling out on international students. It's all coming up. We know. I mean, Jim, I was, I was tweeting recently. I said, you know, whenever I see you writing about this stuff, it's, I agree, but it's a deeply uncomfortable read. You know, if it's not too much of a pun, there are some serious home truths here. You know, we know universities need to plan for proper infrastructure. Whether that needs to be regulated or not, you know, I, I don't know. But, but to be fair to them, that's hard, if not impossible when you expect the rug to be pulled out from international recruitment, you know, at any moment, as as it may well be. You know, how do you plan for that? Welcome to The Wonky Show, your weekly way into this week's higher education news, policy and analysis. I'm Wonky's Associate Editor Jim Dickinson and here to help us understand what's going on, as usual, three terrific guests. Uh, In York, Marion Hilditch is Academic Registrar at the University of Bradford. Marion, your highlight of the week, please. Well, I'm going to have to go with the installation of the new Chancellor Bradford, so Anita Ratney. I mean, did you see those gowns? They were spectacular. Uh, it's just a, it's a very exciting and fresh time for Bradford, and I'm, I'm 100% here for it. Fantastic stuff. And in snowy Sheffield, Mark Bennett is Director, Audience and Editorial at Finder University. Mark, your highlight of the week, please. Well, Jim, speaking professionally, I guess I have to say the highlight of recent weeks has been getting back on university campuses, talking to prospective masters and PhD students at open days and study fairs. It's genuinely inspirational hearing about their plans and ambitions. But personally, I'm very proud of my little Maine Coon kitten who, fingers crossed, is finally learning to use the litter tray, which is a highlight of my week for obvious reasons. And in Clackett Lane Services, David Kernahan is Deputy Editor at Wonky. DK, your highlight of the week, please. Well, uh, it's been an odd week for a number of reasons, but I did manage to sneak in a night out in my hometown of Stockton-on-Tees, which is always an experience, and it I have to say it remains an experience. <laughs> uh, extraordinary. So yes, we start this week with the LLE. The government has published its proposals to overhaul student finance, and the change is coming a big mark. Yes, Jim. Well, as DK points out wonky, this is the biggest shake-up of HE funding since 2012, or, as DFE would have it, People across the country are set to benefit from a complete overhaul of student finance, helping them get flexible loan funding to train, retrain and upskill throughout their working lives. And that's them finally responding to their own LLE consultation, which closed last May. So what we've got now is the response itself, an equalities analysis and an impact assessment, and we know a bit more about it. So we know that learners, including returning students, will be entitled to four years of tuition funding up until age 60, which I find grimly amusing when the policy is called lifelong learning, but we'll leave that. Crucially, it's for modular learning and short courses as well as full degrees at levels four to six, but not any higher, which is perhaps a shame. It's launching for level four and five uh, technical qualifications for 2025, further expansion from 2027 on. We know that maintenance support is going to be expanded to technical courses, but not available for distance learners. And this is already proving a bit contentious. Um, the BBC had a story with Professor Tim Blackman of the OU talking about this. So perhaps there's more to say about that. And we know that equivalent or lower qualifications, the restriction there is going to be removed. So you can take this LLE funding to go back, study another undergraduate level course in a different or indeed the same subject but there's lots 
We don't know. So we don't know how the, the LLE will work with Sharia compliant student finance or indeed really how and when that's going to arrive. We don't know how the IFS is going to regulate quality. Uh, there are questions about credit transfer and what kind of advice and guidance students are going to need to make sense of all these different pathways, modular qualifications, funding amounts and accounts. And there's this promise of target grants for priority courses. Um, we don't know how that's going to be worked out or indeed how courses will be prioritised. But the bill's had its second reading in the Commons. Um, and as DK has said, you know, I think it's the consultation response that's doing a lot of the legwork at the moment. Lots more details still to be uh, provided. DK, uh, you know, one of the things going on here is, you, you know, we're finding out how the pie will be sliced. And actually, there will be lots more, you know, thinner slices. We're also working out who gets a slice of that pie, but we don't know the size of the pie, do we? And that is, that's a problem. That is um, a pie-related conundrum, Jim, I have to say. So the, there's an, a number of little stumbling blocks in this as we have it. We're still waiting for more information. There is a technical consultation coming, so all of the really nerdy stuff that we like, that'll be in there, and hopefully we'll be able to um, pick over those proposals with a bit more information than we have currently. Um, what, for me, is missing? I mean fundamental to all of this what is a credit now we have a a sector recognized standard which should make ears pick um uh ears uh prick up in nichols and house that it refers to 10 hours of um learning of any form which could be um in-person learning it could be independent learning it could be in the lab it could be in a studio whatever you're doing now you would think given that the bill explicitly gives the minister uh powers to define funding levels per credit so this is a tiny tiny resolution um you would think there'd be a definition of what a credit is on the face of the bill no uh that's entirely up in the air so any kind of thing we need to do um with credit is all subject to ministerial whim the other thing as you hint is we haven't got the final detail on eligibility now i think it's fair to say myself and jim are of a certain age we have um higher education qualifications uh we got them some time ago in fact certainly for myself and i believe for you jim as well we were the last cohort not to pay student fees so the question is, are we eligible for any of this lovely LLE stuff if we decide to retrain or anything else? Or are we not, given that we have already had a higher education experience paid for by the government? That's not in the consultation response. That's still to be determined. Supposedly, we will find out at the end of the year. But just that tiny decision, um, are we going to factor that in? There's a huge amount of... um data problems in accurately getting that information if we're going to go right the way back and there's a huge amount of money potentially if everybody if every graduate um gets to the age of 55 um decides i really fancy doing an art history degree and i'm not gonna have to pay it back after 60 so that's absolutely fine um seems to me a big and possibly expensive hole in the proposals and there's nothing in the consultation on that either maria does it does it does a quarter of a degree cost uh, you, 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 you cost a quarter of the amount of money that you, we would fund a full degree for if you see what i mean um well i am kind of amused that it wants to define a credit when we don't even know what the course is <laughs> but um i think the answer to your question is well that depends jim what kind of a course is it who is studying it are they home or an international student how is that are they uh, how is the funding being allocated so um 
There is a bit of policy through the back door in this, isn't there? So, and I think this is part of it. So, I think the, um, the government is trying to get us to, to make these uh, definitions. It's trying to get us to think in terms of sort of modular credits. Um, I mean, at the moment, just the fact that the way funding is allocated is in 25, 25, 50% in a year means that, no, we don't think of it exactly in that way. Um, I, there is a lot to like about this, a, a lot. There is a lot to like here. Access to um, funding for um, more people is, um, I think, unquestionably a good thing. Uh, doing away with the ELQ, so uh, equivalent level qualification rule, is absolutely also a good thing. A simplifying student finance system is definitely a good thing. Uh, so when the uh, second stage of this comes into play and um, full courses are also under the same model. Now, but things like, well, you can take a module, but it has to form part of a bigger qualification. Uh, it has to be 30 credits at least. Uh, it has to be reusable throughout your life. Um, that in itself is an interesting concept because right now um, there is such a thing as RPL and credits into a program, uh, even if you think in terms of traditional programs. But most universities would say not if you did those credits 10 years ago or 20 years ago or 30 years ago. Um, so that idea of you can accumulate credits throughout your lifetime to build up to a program it is problematic. Um, so there's a lot of theory here that might not translate in practice to exactly how we want it to. Yes, Mark, if you think about the, the kind of incentives, one of the, one of the arguments that people have made, you know, you, you, to some extent from the back benches has been that, you know, if you price everything at 9250 and then you allow people to kind of recruit as many students as you want, that incentivizes universities to recruit and, 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 you know, c kind of expand all the stuff that costs less than 9250 to deliver. And, and, and the problem is that might not meet the kind of needs of the economy. So if, once you're down at modular level, if you take the modules that, you know, form, form an entire degree, it, it doesn't feel like there are any incentives here to offer modules that cost more than the, 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 what you've sliced it down by. Isn't there a danger that what actually gets offered here isn't really what the government wants the sector to put on in terms of skills and reskilling and so on? Well, that, that's it, isn't it? I mean, I think in many ways, you know, it's, it's a lovely vision, I agree with Marion, but it's a vision without any kind of clear plan. And that the... You know, it's very hard to predict what people are going to do with this. Um, you know, as has been pointed out several times, you know, the, the short courses trial had a, a really a risible number of um, participants, it seems. And there's certainly not enough data in that. You know, we're talking about lifelong learning. We're talking about vast ranges of audiences which will want to do different things with this. And, you know, it could well be that, you know, I mean, what is to stop? I'm not the first person to make this point, but what is to stop someone just repeatedly studying the same module or the same type of module? You know, that's presumably not what we want to fund. But equally, you know, will people understand, um, you know, if I study this here, you know, will they understand the pathways that they can take through different sets of modules over a long period of time to reach particular outcomes and, and are those the outcomes that we want you know I, I find it a little bit sinister that you know the talk as, as I kind of mentioned earlier about these kind of you know um, targeted grants for priority courses you know because this of course can be a way to kind of stealthily you know you're saying all right if you study the things we like we're going to top up your maintenance loan it's not going to be a loan you're going to get a grant so you know, that's nice we're back to some version of maintenance grants but actually it means that all these courses we don't like and you know we can perhaps imagine what some of those might be and they may indeed be the things that people want to study we're going to make those more expensive you know it's going to be hot you're going to have to already you're going to have, you won't be able to do them by distance learning you'll have to move to be near a university which just won't be practical for a lot of people we won't give you any extra support so 
I, I don't know. I think it's just so hard to predict what people are going to actually end up using this for. DK, if, if the assumption is that a 30 credit module in, in whatever subject, you know, in whatever stage of wherever it kind of fits in a degree, whichever provider in the country it costs the same, you know, costs the same amount of money in terms of tuition fee debt. Is that sustainable? That, that kind of, you know, moving, trying to price everything at exactly the same price? Or is that, are we about to kind of enter a, this is a step too far in terms of all the cross subsidies? It's absolutely, uh, fascinating in that, uh, government policy over the past couple of decades has been to promote competition on on, uh, price. And although nominally in the LLE, you have the chance to say, okay, the fee limit for this kind of course would be this, we're going to charge you less. Um, in practice, the government seems to have conceded that the sector is going to charge the maximum possible fee for any given uh, course. Now, whether that reflects the actual costs of putting on a particular course is an interesting question. There's still, I believe, there's still going to be the, the level of subsidy for strategically important uh, courses in subjects coming through the OFS. Not quite sure how that's going to work at a module level. Uh, would be a spectacularly or, or student complicated premium thing. Funding. That, that's also, you know, well, isn't it? student premium uh, funding these days is um, basically money that goes into the hardship fund. But um, there is a lot of money flying about. And although it's tempting to take okay a module is a module is a module is a module in practice some modules some courses are of more value to the country and to the taxpayer that is ultimately providing a part of the funding for them we already have this um concept in the ofs allocations it actually moves it across into uh the department it's a little bit of a power grab in that respect and that and that might be something that people need to think about a bit. Do we want um, directly ministers setting subject level priorities based on whatever they've read on the Telegraph this morning, rather than what is hopefully a slightly more thoughtful consideration that happens at the Office of Students? I don't know. Yeah. Marion, the other thing I was thinking about, right, was if, if you've got someone that's just doing a module, like for eight weeks... Then they can, you know, they can use a seat in the library for eight weeks. You've got to set up a sort of, you know, a bunch, of, a student record for them. There's a bunch of stuff that kind of costs the same, whether someone's doing a a one twentieth of a course or 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 a, or, a, or a five year course, right? I mean, th- there's there's a bunch of costs that are actually kind of relatively chunky, even if you've got a really really, you know, kind of small, you know, in- piece of engagement over X number of weeks. Yeah, it, it, it's interesting that because uh, there's also a lot around uh, how we induct students um, in general, student onboarding, and as you say, the services available to them at the university. Obviously, the length of time uh, may be limited uh, if you're only doing a module, but yeah, quite rightly, uh, system cost, admin costs, uh, the the space that they occupy, as you put it. Um, so... I would think, though, that that is something that would be factored in. I think the biggest challenge, though, is that for any way you want to look at it, um, we've come to accept this uniformity of pricing uh, for home students and for um, across all subjects, but uh, not the modules cost the same. Uh, and I think we all know that. And, you know, there is a, a concept of, uh, of price groups. Um, and a lab-based course is not going to cost the same as, uh, you know, an English literature co- uh, module, for example. Um, so, and again, how, how do we price this? If we're saying that, I mean, the simpler solution is, as you say, 
to just say, right, this is a nine to 50, uh, in a year. Let's divide this by credits and then just allocate, uh, that cost. Um, that is never the real cost of the pro, of the program. Uh, it's never the real cost for students, but it does seem to be kind of, I think, what, the the thinking behind this is I, I I can't stop thinking about the open university model to be honest because it does seem to me that this is more or less kind of what this is hinting at um, I mean the the open university does offer six credit modules and it it offers them um, remotely uh, so some of the costs you're referring to don't apply here uh, and this is why open university fees are uh, lower. Um, but the model uh, of, yep, you can do a module, you'll get something for that module, you can then come back, add those credits, you can make use of credits that you've had from other institutions to uh, not have to repeat some modules here. This does seem to me very much to be that kind of model. And the Open University have cracked it in terms of uh, of their fees uh, and do apply them on a sort of like um, equal basis. So I don't see this as a huge problem in terms of how we implement and how we split the cost of a module up. Uh, but in reality, as is the case now, that's never going to be reflective of the actual cost of university. Yeah. I, I guess, Mark, one of the real big questions here is, you know, th- th- there is at least an argument that says maybe to the extent to which the Open University have cracked this, they've basically got all of the demand that's there for this kind of thing. How much more demand is there for this kind of thing is the big question. Well, yeah, I mean, that that's certainly... That certainly is, isn't it? You know, and I, I think it's relevant, isn't it? That, uh, as the BBC, you know, as we saw in the BBC article that, you know, the OU is very quickly making the points that actually, you know, that the restriction on distance learning and so on is a problem for this. It won't grow that demand. You know, the people who can already do this, they'll go through the OU model. Um, and, and one of the things, you know, not to kind of take it too much to kind of my area of personal interest, but, you know, I think, you know, Marion made the point that this, is going to simplify student finance, and that's a good thing, and it is. But I think it's going to create some strange, um, perverse, you know, impacts potentially on other areas of demand. And I'm thinking about postgrad here. You know, there's a lot to say about postgrad, perhaps not time here, but think about it this way, right? In a few years, someone will graduate. They'll have done three years of undergraduate education, and now they can go back and do a fourth year through LLE, right? If they do that, they will get a loan that will cover their fees, whatever those fees may be, as we've discussed, and they'll get probably some contribution to maintenance. But if they go back to study at level seven or above, which is what they probably do now, they're in a very different situation. You know, they'd get a very different loan that isn't as adequate. I think we can agree, you know, and that's that's a very different scenario. And I don't think we're thinking about that holistically enough in terms of demand across, you know, lifelong learning. Yes, yes, yes. Interesting. DK, just just remind us where we are on, 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 on our kind of intel on demand. So uh, we've been trying to get the figures out of um, DFE for quite a long time. Uh, Back in September, we knew that there were 12 students that had taken up a course, um, a fee loan linked to the short course trial. I had to go to SLC to get the numbers in in, um, January. At that point, there were 33. And we need to recall this is 104 courses at, I think, 22 or 23 institutions. So quite a lot of supply out there. And the intelligence I'm getting is that students are absolutely signing up for these courses, but they're not paying for them through this LLE style loan. They're either paying for them directly or their employers are paying for them or something else is going on. So although there is clearly demand for lifelong learning and there's clearly demand for short course provision. I mean, basically every university... (laughs) There's not really, no. It's the attractiveness of the student loan model. Um, And this particular Plan 5 um, configuration where you're basically um, paying off um, 30 credit collection modules that you did for the next 
40 years, possibly. Um, that's not an attractive offer. And I think that in the discussions in Parliament around the bill, we've seen a lot of uh, ministers conflating demand for lifelong learning and the idea that lifelong learning is a good thing. Um, and the demand for this particular style of finance, which is, I mean, I mean, um, given the small drops we've started to see in applications for undergrad undergraduate traditional uh, provision, I think we need to think, okay, is this model of paying for higher education actually putting people off? And is there something we need to do about that? Marianne, when when a bunch of students do all of their kind of undergraduate first year modules, and then don't do their second year ones, because they don't come back, um, the regulator says, that's bad and a failure (laughs) it's it's a non-continuation it's a dropout this is terrible under this model is uh, is a bunch of people doing that number of modules a success or a failure or what (laughs) um i think we're going to have to start thinking about what the continuation is very differently um under this scheme um and uh, talking through this I've, I've just uh you know the other thing that um um it becomes an obvious question is how do you predict your student numbers um per module as an institution if they are part of a bigger course um how do you cap them uh, because currently we think in terms of programs, uh, student numbers per program, we don't think in terms as much as student numbers per module, uh, even though every university will have an element of optionality. Um, it, it isn't something that's going to sway numbers that drastically in individual module units. Um, so, um, I, I mean, there is a concept of, uh, you know, qualification name, and this is what uh, continuation so, uh, is based on. So if you are coming into the university to do a module and your qualification name is the credits for that module, uh, you're unlikely to be punished by the regulator if a student doesn't then go on to do a full course. Um so um, there is then the question of, well, how do you define uh, somebody's intentions? Uh, are they coming in to register on an individual module? How do you know what they're going to do next? Um, so planning becomes more of a challenge, I would say, than uh, anything else. And uh, as a sector, we've learned to under-promise and over-deliver. Um, so if a student, for example, has the option to do a, a three-year bachelor's program or a four-year with a year in industry bachelor's program, which is identical, say for the extra year, we tend to say that that student is coming in for uh, three years and then if they do an extra year, great, rather than say they're coming in for four years and then if they decide to suddenly drop a year. Uh, cause, so um, so I can see us going into a, module or a model of... Uh, uh, of sort of um, registering students and individual modules for fear that they might actually change their mind uh, and then leave. Um, I think, I, I don't, again, I think there are ways around these things, uh, but I think it will drastically change if a university makes a decision to offer individual modules because I don't see a lot of incentive here for it, to be honest with you. I mean, what do universities gain? Unless there is a huge demand, and we're saying that we're not sure that there is. So unless there is a huge demand for a particular module that the university offers or two or three modules the university offers in a in a data analytics or an AI course, for example, um, for them to change the way that they think about their curriculum and uh, how that's offered and structured, there isn't much here. Um, it's not like apprenticeships, which have a very clear incentive uh, behind them for learners, for universities and for employers. Uh, because they get money for them. Uh, in this case, there isn't really money here. Yeah. 
Um, so what is actually going to make universities start offering these things is more what I would be asking. Well, there's a real, real head-scratcher. Uh, fascinating stuff, lots of coverage on the site. Now let's see who's been blogging for us this week. Hello, my name's Paul Gratrick. I'm Head of Operations and the Student Experience Director at the University of Liverpool. And I'm also the current President of the uh, Association of Graduate Careers Advisory Services, or as you may well hopefully know it, uh, as ADCAS. And it's in that capacity that I'm uh, speaking to you today. I've recently written for Wonky, uh, covering all kinds of things really, but just looking at the year ahead and the significant challenges and changes that might be around the corner in the careers and employability world. Firstly, thinking about the, the rise of AI and ChatGPT. Uh, but hopefully kind of positioning that as something that's not a threat, but something that we should understand so we can help students use it to the best of their ability as that assistive technology uh, in their career endeavours. The second thing I've also kind of talked about is making sure that in the career employability community, we draw on that community for our work. It's a very collaborative space and at any institution we're facing very, very similar challenges. So let's look to each other to kind of advance our work, be that assisting with recruitment processes or kind of strategy reviews, but draw on that collective expertise. And just lastly, I've kind of highlighted a few things that are changing from a student engagement point of view. For example, you know, obviously the cost of living, the increasing part-time work that students are having to do. And that's necessarily going to change the way that careers and employability teams have to adapt what they uh, put on offer to students. Can't just do what we've always done before COVID. Keep evolving so we provide students with the right kind of activities in the right way, in the right time, in what is that ever kind of changing student engagement landscape. Now, next up, the government has published the independent review of the research development of the innovation organisation, the nurse review, Marion. So, yes, Jim, uh, the government has published the independent review of the research development and innovation organisational landscape uh, conducted by uh, Paul Nurse. Um, the review uh, points out the strength of the UK research base, particularly that found in universities, uh, draws comparisons to other countries, um, uh, also makes note of the fact that it is actually funding for the for the sector is actually larger than we previously thought, but it's still lagging behind other countries uh, and that the the percentage of government funding is smaller than uh, what we thought so far. Um, it uh, finds that there are some challenges um, with um, um, the, uh, the funding of the sector, such as the excessive bureaucracy around it, um, that the funding arrangements tend to focus around competition rather than collaboration, that there is no um, not enough uh, end uh, to end, as he calls it, as Nurse uh, calls it, uh, funding for research that uh, covers everything, uh, including you know the administration and the lab costs and the the entirety of a of a research program program which goes beyond uh, the research itself, and that. Uh, this is another sector where instability in the political landscape uh, over the past many years has had a significant impact uh, because um, we've seen too much change in policy uh, to uh, offer the stability that a sector like this needs to expand. So there are 29 recommendations in this review. Uh, some of which uh, worth mentioning are um, that there should be a bit more stability uh, in, the, in uh, what the government is trying to achieve and the national framework uh, for RDI uh, that we need uh, costing to uh, take into account this end-to-end funding uh, as, uh, as it's uh, called in the review um, that uh, 
Um, this is, again, another area where reliance on international student numbers uh, might have a significant impact if uh, there is another change in policy, which we are all waiting to happen uh, any day now, because um, we are seeing international students uh, not just subsidize home students, but also uh, research at universities, and that uh, there should be a bit more independence, administrative independence across the sector, uh, not just uh, for specific institutions. Um, another thing to note is that this review has been published at the same time as the uh, new science and technology framework, uh, government's um, science and technology framework. Um, so both uh, need to be seen together um, uh, to understand how they link to making the UK a science superpower by 2030 um, and um, uh, its investment in R&D, among other things, and uh, talent development and so on. Yes, our old friend uh, Michelle Donnellan, obviously in that job now, uh, launched that strategy this week. Let's have a clip. Thank you, Mr Deputy Speaker. The creation of the Department for Science, Innovation and Technology marks a watershed moment for science, innovation and technology here in the UK. We now have a government department that focuses on one single mission to make the UK a science and technology superpower. Science and technology is absolutely critical to the UK's future prosperity, security and the health and well-being of our citizens and our environment. That is why it is the central pillar of the integrated review. Countries that embrace science and technology will be prosperous and secure, home to innovators and technology companies of the future. Those that don't, won't. My vision for DCIT starts from an extraordinary position. Last year, the UK joined only China and the US in having a technology sector worth over a trillion dollars. Now, despite our relative size, Britain outperforms our closest competitors, and we are a main challenger nation to the US and to China in many areas. We have four of the world's top ten universities. Just eight of our university towns are home to more unicorns than the whole of France and Germany combined. However, when other countries are investing further and faster in science and tech, we must do the same. DK, um, the, the, where have we got to on kind of funding? Did Nurse go as far as to kind of scrap QR or, or, or not? Uh, he didn't go as far as that, although there are um, a lot of rumblings around the sector that that was partially what he had in mind. Uh, he does recommend a review of the idea of uh, QR funding. For those of us that don't have our heads perennially in the research world, um, QR funding is the stuff that you get that's linked to a measure of research excellence, usually your ref results, and you get a little allocation which is unhypothecated, which in layman's terms means you can spend it on anything you damn well please. Um, and it's that kind of thing that is supposed to keep up the capacity of um, the sector to do research Um in the gaps between um, getting research grants and to pay for all the other stuff that isn't directly covered by research grants. It also tops up research grants that do not um, contribute the full economic cost of carrying out a research, and that's something else that um, Nurse goes really heavily on. Now, the downside of QR is that it, it is only allocated to universities. There are lots of other places that carry out research and need to maintain research capacity, but do not necessarily get uh, the kind of funding that is um, available to 
purely to bolster that capacity. And this is really important stuff. This is the kind of thing that keeps researchers in in um, jobs in the gaps between the last grant and the next one, the last project and the next one. Um, it, mean, it, it means that we've got a lot more stuff that we can do more uh, quickly, that if we've got an urgent research need, if there's um, a technological uh, breakthrough that we need to look into. We've got the researchers and the capacity standing by in the system. Now, I mean, one of the memes I've been trying to get across into sector discourse recently is the idea of the university sector as a skills and innovation infrastructure that is actually a capital investment, not just in the individual projects and the kit, but in keeping the capacity there to use it at a moment's notice at the drop of a hat. Um, although uh, QR is really popular in terms of it allows universities to kind of even up even out the uh, peaks and troughs. It's um, a reliable allocation and it can be increased and tweaked in times of great need like we saw in COVID. It might be that there are better ways of allocating funds to do that kind of thing. I think everybody in the sector would stick to the principle that we do need to have that consistent and reliable investment in research and innovation capacity. Uh, Quite what it looks like is up for grabs. Now, and while we're on that question of uh, investment, uh, Mark, there's, there, there is this <laughs> there is this looming horizon question, isn't there? There is, yes. Uh, before I answer, can I just say, by the way, um, I'd like to marvel at the wonders of terminology when the Secretary of State for Science, Innovation and Technology can declare in Parliament that Britain is home to more unicorns than the whole of France and Germany. That was that was a highlight of the Hansard for me. Um, obviously, we know what that means. I won't explain. But yes, um, yeah, and indeed, actually, to stay on the topic of Hansard, one of the things that you know Donalyn was sort of taken to task regarding was the fact that you know we yeah that her initial speech made no mention whatsoever of Horizon. And it looks like with with the Windsor framework that we may be making a bit of progress here. But again, you know, it's it's that kind of uncertainty, isn't it? It's that that underpins or doesn't underpin you know capacity building and the ability to offer certain projects and certain, you know, for certain labs in particular, just to, to continue and to, for funding to be planned end to end, you know, as, as nurse, um, as nurse says. And it's, you know, again, coming from where I sit in relation to this, um, you know, focusing a lot on postgraduate recruitment and so on, you know, it's, it's a big issue for universities planning for, you know, for career development, for researcher training. Um, we've got the government's previous R&D strategy, you know, they say, what was it? They want 150,000 additional researchers. At least some of that's going to come via additional PhD recruitment. You know, universities, are keen to recruit more PhD students. I can tell you that there are lots of prospective PhD students out there, but actual UK PhD recruitment just kind of sits at around about 100,000, you know, pretty much the same year on year. And, you know, Nurse, I think, does address this a little bit. You know, he, he talks about the need for supporting longer, more structured PhDs. So you kind of four year programs, which allow space for that additional training and career development. And again, this is the sort of thing that, you know, that kind of underpinning that you get through, you know, sources such as Horizon can provide. Um, the problem, of course, is that, you know, there isn't currently additional UKRI budget. And again, you know, other things like Horizon are, are they here? Are they there? You know, at the minute, if we spend more on each PhD, we'll end up funding less of them, you know, kind of robbing Peter to pay Sir Paul, if you like. And, uh, you know, the, the government's own threat science and technology framework, it doesn't have much to offer here. There's reference to, I think it's 117 million to train hundreds of new PhDs in AI, which is great. But it's existing funding. It's already budgeted for across, you know, existing UKRI CDTs. You know, I'm not saying there are obvious solutions here beyond, you know, increasing budgets, but it's something we're going to have to think about. Um, and, and yeah, a nurse also, I, I think, talks about, you know, other aspects of this in terms of, you know, career development and 
you know, people coming into PGR and not just thinking about academic careers, thinking about actual work in R&D and what that looks like. There just isn't enough visibility. You know, we have lots and lots of people on our platforms and only 14% of them say they're motivated by thoughts of a non-academic career. You know, and that's not any higher in STEM either. So lots of work to do around it, I think. But yes, building up capacity, having consistent capacity would be part of this. And hopefully we'll, we'll, you know, we'll get some clarity on horizons. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Soon, right? And finally, there's new polling out on international students, and I've been looking at where they're living, DK. You certainly have, Jim. Uh, so let's go to what uh, Public First and Universities UK have been uh, doing. There's been lots of concern about international students, and it's become a political issue as opposed to an issue of sector planning. Uh, the vast majority of people who responded to a Public First UK question believe the UK should, hold the sa- should host the same or more international students students in terms of um, numbers and the majority think the international students give more money to the economy than they take out and only 32% of the public believe that international students should be classed as immigrants in official uh, figures which is an issue that keeps coming off but of course that is an OECD requirement rather than a UK decision uh, which is your fun fact for the day. So Jim has been looking at the site, on the site, which you will see published on Friday, uh, where students live, specifically where international students live. Now, this is absolutely fascinating. We know that the sector is suffering an accommodation crisis. We know that the demand for accommodation has gone right up. And we know that a lot of universities and a lot of students are really struggling in this climate. The um, assumption has been this has been a rise in UK students who are living away from home. In actual fact, the number of UK students living away from home has decreased over previous years, although we have a slight uh, pandemic effect in the data that we need probably another year to know that for certain. Uh, The huge increase in international students, international students obviously are not going to be living with their parents or living elsewhere. They're going to want to be in the city that they're studying and they're going to need accommodation arranging for them. That's gone right up. And it looks like that is putting pressure on demand, particularly for the private rented market. Now, a lot of this is going to be your HMO of legend. The uh, categories we get from HESA are, of course, quite broad. So it could be 
a lot of other stuff in there. But that is putting a huge pressure on the private rented market overall, not just for students in a number of larger towns and cities in the UK. Um, it's a big issue. And because we seem as a nation to believe that we don't need to regulate student accommodation at all, and there doesn't need to be any link between recruitment and accommodation planning that the market will step in and sort it out. The market is clearly not stepping in and sorting out. We're on the cusp of a huge, um, I don't think it's too far to say crisis here, and nobody seems to be doing anything about it. Mark, obviously one of the, you know, there's, we've got some aggregate figures on the site today, but actually, I mean, the other thing that uh, DK has built for us is a little visualiser so you can see what's going on at provider level. There is a different story in some towns and cities, isn't there? Uh, yes, certainly. Yes, I mean, you know, I, I talked to um, talked to various universities actually, and um, you know, I, I think we, I, I won't name the institutions, but we had two um, relatively nearby, and one of them was saying, "Yes, we, you know, we are inundated with international students. You know, it's a real concern. We have them turning up. There's no for them to live." And the other one was saying, "You could send them to us." You know, it really does vary. Um, it really does vary. I, mean, I, I think, you know, not, not to kind of hijack the question and so on, but, you know, I think what we need here is consistency, right? You know, we know. I mean, Jim, I was, I was tweeting recently. I said, you know, whenever I see you writing about this stuff, it's, I agree, but it's a deeply uncomfortable read. You know, if it's not too much of a pun, there are some serious home truths here. You know, we know universities need to plan for proper infrastructure, whether that needs to be regulated or not. You know, I, I don't know, but it does need to be supported. But to be fair to them, that's hard, if not impossible, when you expect the rug to be pulled out from an, international recruitment you know at any moment as, as it may well be you know how do you plan for that yes this is the age-old question about family accommodation isn't it who on earth will invest in family accommodation when the sword of damocles is over international pgts being able to bring dependents into the country you know it's the it's kind of circle of of doom where, where does this go marion because obviously right around europe actually governments are increasingly attempting to fund massification through international recruitment but if that is placing pressure on housing markets certainly looks like it is in the uk and it definitely is in other parts of europe too where does that end where does the line get drawn i'm I'm gonna go back to my rant about the abysmal state of the rental market in the uk i think um so um, I, I don't think uh, anytime soon we're going to be seeing any kind of government intervention or, or support or anything that's going to be helpful to uh, share accommodation. And quite rightly, as uh, you know, Mark said, and um, uh, and you've said, is the the big question of what's going to happen to students who come over with dependents, and they tend to be the students who struggle the most. I think for me. One of the interesting consequences of all of this and where this is going has been some of the um, requirements that we're starting to see coming from students because they don't live near the campus. So we are seeing students who um, could live two hours away or even further than that from their actual campus because uh, either it's cheaper where they are or that's where their friends live or because they just couldn't find anything um, and uh, they've had to live somewhere further away. And what that translates to is them starting to tell us things like, could you not um, make it so that I don't have to be in every day of the week? Could you not make it so that I don't have a six-hour gap because what am I going to do on campus for six hours? Could you not make it so, you know, basically um, my curriculum is suited to me being a commuter student. Uh, and I think that's a very interesting shift and one that we need to look out for because it changes our whole relationship with our own student population. So if you are uh, a university that is struggling to find local accommodation for students, you can't overlook that. You can't just turn around and say, well, you know, 
your teaching is Monday to Friday, 95 or 96, and you need to be on campus for this amount of time, that will put students off. Uh, and that, I think, takes us back to the distance learning um, conversation and the fact that the government is not planning on offering maintenance for uh, distance learning programs. But actually, what is the difference, really, realistically, of a full-time distance learner and a full-time student who lives on a university campus when they're actually living two hours away? Um, and they cannot be on campus every day of the week. Uh, and what's the difference? Why Why is somebody studying full-time on a distance learning basis not entitled to a maintenance loan? Um, and uh, why is somebody uh, who lives on campus actually better off uh, when the other student, um, uh, you know, equally can't work for the same number of hours? Um, so I think our relationship with the student population will change. Uh, it is linked to the cost of living crisis as well. We're seeing more students working longer hours and again, uh, it's impacting the number of hours that they want to be on campus and how they want to interact with us. So I think there are many pieces to this puzzle and um, uh, one to look out for. So that's about it for this week. Remember to dig a bit deeper into anything we've discussed today. You'll find links in the show notes at wonky.com. Don't forget you can get the latest show automatically when it's out. Just search for The Wonky Show wherever you get your podcasts. And to find out how we can keep you and your organisation ahead of everything going on in UKHE, do head to the website to find out more about our subscriptions. So thanks very much to Marion, Mark, DK, our news editor, Michael Salmon, who makes the show happen. Mark will be here next week. And until then, stay wonky. are on a budget we still deserve nice things quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80 percent less than similar brands they have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at 50 dollars, luxurious italian leather bags and so much more plus quince only works with factories that use safe ethical and responsible manufacturing get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with quince go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365 day returns